This episode of the Cloudcast is sponsored by ServiceNow. ServiceNow is changing the way people work. With a service orientation towards the activities, tasks, and processes that make up day-to-day work life, ServiceNow helps the modern enterprise operate faster and be more scalable than ever before. To learn more about the enterprise cloud built to manage everything as a service, please visit www.servicenow.com. And now, on to the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to The Cloudcast, coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina, on a very, very hot, humid summer day uh, out here in Raleigh. Aaron, how are you? Welcome back to the show. Yeah, yeah, doing great, doing great. Um, really nice to actually be back and kind of getting back into it. Things got a little crazy busy with work again. Um, but no, we're between that and the, the upcoming JeffCast, um, some of the work going on that had a, a DNS breakthrough uh, moments before the show. So everything's kind of moving along nicely right now. Yeah, and we, uh, we're still expecting to get that out here. Eh, give, give us a, you know, a few more days to kind of work out a few kinks and then uh, lots of good stuff come on the serverless side of things. But tonight, um, Aaron, do you remember the very first show we had where we said we, we only have one mission and that's to go find people that are much, much smarter than us and, and bring them on the show? Yes, yeah. and, and tonight, we, tonight we've done that without a doubt. Yeah, so tonight we're uh, very excited to have... <laughs> Tonight, we're very excited to have James Cowling on from a storage lead at Dropbox. James, welcome to the show. Good day, guys. Thanks for having me here. It's very charitable of you to give that introduction, but it's, uh, it's nice to be in the show with you guys. Yeah. So, uh, so before we get into to, uh, you know, kind of what we're going to get into tonight, and give folks a little bit of your background, because it is... Um, it's not only is it is it very timely in terms of you know you guys just had a huge article written about you and, and so forth, but you know in terms of people talking about distributed systems and you know what's going on with internet scale stuff, give folks some of your background and kind of how you uh, you know what you were doing and how you got over into Dropbox. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Australia and I've always been into tech. I've always been a kind of a, a tech guy, um, but I, I came out here on exchange to the U.S. You know, back in two thousand and two, and realized I, I kind of liked it here. Uh, so came back to the U.S. again later on, did a, did a master's and a Ph.D. Uh, over at MIT, uh, where I specialized in distributed systems. Um, and since then, I kind of um, had this kind of fork in the road, whether to stay in academia and be a professor. And I decided, you know what, I want to spend some time getting my hands dirty. Uh, and so I've been at Dropbox for the past four years. Um, but, you know, I guess being here, what's exciting to me, if you look at the cross-section of the team I, I work with, yeah, we have the same number of, of PhDs as, as college dropouts. So there's a, there's a very broad <laughs> background, and I can tell you the college dropouts are usually a lot smarter than me. Um, so it, it's um, I wouldn't say my background is at all a prerequisite for doing this kind of work, but I, I have spent a lot of time uh, in, in a past life you know, researching uh, systems, storage systems, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's great. Um, so, you know, a lot of folks had a, an opportunity. You guys made a lot of noise. Uh, a few months back, Wired Magazine wrote a great article about, um, you know, kind of a, I think it was called sort of the, the, the exodus of, from AWS. But it was a, it was a really good piece about, um, you know, why Dropbox from both a business perspective, but then this huge technical challenge of, of basically moving your business, a core part of your business uh, from, you know, uh, a very large public cloud provider to, to bringing you know, big pieces of it back in house, you know, the, the equivalent of, 
you know, changing the tires on an airplane or changing the wheels on an air, the wings on an airplane when it's flying. Give us some of that background of, uh, you know, how the idea got started. What were, what were some of the big thinking that went on behind all this, you know, give folks some color behind maybe what they might've read in that wired piece. Yeah. I'm in an interesting position because, because you know, I, I've been kind of branded as, as as the guy kind of advocating for in-house infrastructure, and that's and that's what I do. That's what my job is, and and I, I work on the storage system here at Dropbox. But simultaneously, I'm also a big advocate for cloud services, right? And and Dropbox has always been a, a huge customer of, of of cloud services, in particular of Amazon. And so, if you go back to kind of 2007, the early days of Dropbox, uh, we had this kind of we're kind of one of the pioneers of this of this hybrid model, where we had um, all of our block storage, so what we call block storage, basically the big blob store that stores the file contents. That's always been in Amazon S3 since very early on, early on in the company, and we've had our own data centers also since very early on in the company, which contained all our business logic, so all our metadata, um, all our application services, our databases have always been in our own data centers. And so Dropbox has always had the attitude of, uh, you know, using, leveraging third parties where it makes sense. And for us, that meant, you know, a lot of our, um, you know, being able to control our databases, being able to control application services made a lot of sense from early on. Um, Being able to leverage Amazon scale for the storage, because it's a pretty big challenge to build kind of exabyte scale storage. It made sense for us to leverage off Amazon. Uh, and plus, we've got plenty of other services that we run on AWS, you know, uh, SQS and SES and SMS and a whole bunch of things that acronyms that start with the letter S and end with the letter S. Um, and so, but there came a time uh, where it started to make sense for us to run our own storage. And it's not, um, it's not a decision that I would necessarily advocate for in general for companies. Dropbox is in a very unique place. Uh, one where we have an absolutely mammoth amount of data. You know, I think we've gone public in saying we have over 500 petabytes of user data. We have, you know, over 500 million customers. And a big part of our business is storage, you know, storage and collaboration and sharing, that kind of stuff. So it made sense for us to start investing in running this in-house. Uh, obviously, um, in terms of resource utilization and financials, it makes sense for us, only at that very large scale, but primarily from a technical perspective. So, you know, Having been at Dropbox for a long period of time, I have a very good sense as to what the average block size is. You know, the average um, object size we store is 1.6 megabytes, you know, and I know exactly what the distribution of those accesses look like and what data is hot, what data is cold, and where those users are located and, and, and what times they're accessing this information. So that allows us to kind of build a storage system that's very closely tailored to our use cases. And and that's where it starts to make sense for us. So I think for us it makes sense only when you have a combination of economies of scale, absolutely necessary. It's it's really difficult to build a system of this scale, you know, well without your very large uh, infrastructure basis to to justify the the the, the investment. Um, you know, you need to have a very good understanding of your workloads and a motivation for doing things yourself. And you also have to have the talent, right? We have to build up a team. And so when I got to Dropbox, infrastructure, I think, was seven people, the entire infrastructure team. And so it was a pretty big undertaking back then to start building a storage system. And and, and from then onwards, it really required ramping up the core team, but also hiring people that 
at the time, I didn't even know, you know, roles I didn't even know existed. You know, stuff like um, supply chain teams and capacity engineers and, and, and hardware engineers. And we have folks who specialize just in hard drives. And so, um, you know, we had to, it was, it was a big shift for the company, you know, technically in terms of taking on a big technical challenge, but also organizationally. You know, we had to hire a lot of very experienced people, um, but ultimately, the company's a lot better off for it because we've we've managed to kind of increase our talent basis now. You know, now that we've built what's ultimately a multi-exabyte storage system across at least three geographic regions, um, you know, we have the capability to build a lot of other systems internally as well. Oh, that makes sense. And so, if you call, yeah, again, the the code name of this was was Magic Pocket. Um, if you go read the uh, wired the Wired magazine article, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But so, let me ask you this: Then there's always kind of lessons learned as you're going through, and and also, of course, afterwards. But so, what went right, and, and what went wrong, and and what surprised you in all of this? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say I'll start with a surprise one because. I'll reflect on like my personal experience. You know, when I when I was when I was doing a, a thesis on distributed transactions, I was never thinking about how many racks of hardware will fit on the loading dock at a given point in time, right? And and there was there was a period of time in the product where we were scaling up so rapidly that our bottleneck was literally how many racks we could get off of trucks and into our data center at, at a given point in time. You know, we were bringing up thirty to forty racks. Uh, full of storage hardware per day. So these kind of extremely practical concerns. I remember speaking to um, our folks in the data center and we kind of designed um, deployment plans for how to to bring up racks. Let's say you have 16 racks come into the data center. What rows should you put them in to provide the maximal amount of physical diversity? You want to have these on different circuit breakers and different power distribution units. And, you know, having conversations like, hey, we have this plan, but we just can't Tetris these racks for the data center fast enough to keep up with the scale. So these are very, very practical concerns. Uh, I guess some of the things that, um, that you just wouldn't naturally foresee until you've done it. Um, but what, what went right? I mean, a lot of, fortunately, a lot of things went right in the project. And, you know, we executed, you know, ahead of, ahead of uh, schedule and under budget. I think what we did well was we invested very, very heavily in verification systems and testing and validation and gave us a lot of confidence that the system would, would, would run and be correct and also invested very heavily in, in automation. You know, we have many hundreds of thousands of disks in production and we have a team of about four people who, um, who kind of oversee all operations with respect to the, to the physical hardware um, on the software side. And so the only way you can manage that kind of volume of hardware is by having a lot of pretty advanced automation. And that's one thing we invested well in. In terms of things that could have done better, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer. I think in, in hindsight, things actually went pretty well. I think probably what we could have done is invest earlier on in um, experienced operational people. So there was a very early phase of the project where we were kind of really prototyping and just kind of messing around, trying to work out what the system would look like and what our workload was going to be, because we knew we were building a system for a workload we didn't quite yet understand. You know, we hadn't run multiple exabytes of storage as a company. And so uh, I think, you know, investing in people early on who could have helped us, you know, operationalize and automate a lot of our, 
of our deployments would have been a, a very worthwhile investment. Of course, in the we ultimately did did do this and, and hired these people, and they really leveled us up as a company. Um, but yeah, I think that was the, the the key. You know, you might think that um, the hardest part of the system is the design, right, and and coding it and and implementing it, and that was hard. But you know, we have a lot of really talented engineers with a lot of experience in systems and. And a, and a big focus on simplicity and keeping things absolutely as simple as possible. And, you know, that was this kind of rule on the team. You know, every decision, if there's a cool way of doing it or a simple way of doing it, you always go the simple way because the complexity comes later on when you kind of try to deploy this stuff. And so we we're fortunate to have got the design right uh, and had a design that was flexible. And then the big challenges were kind of building out, scaling out um, and operationalizing the system. Yeah, no, it, it, you know, a lot of that stuff, um, you know, logically makes makes a ton of sense. And I think, um, you know, the, when you talk about sort of the surprises of, of things like, oh, you you have to plan for supply chain, you have to plan for, you know, things like power and cooling and, and, you know, stuff that you sort of know you have to do, but to do it at, you know, either at pace or at scale is is a is a different sort of logistics. It's sort of like, you know, you could you could throw an event at your house like a party, but if you were throwing a an event for a Super Bowl party, it'd be like a whole different thing because it happens once and it's fifty times the scale you're used to. And um, I, I'm very interested because you know part of the thing that that I think Aaron and I probably both have going on in the back of our mind is um, you know we're we're trying to say you know there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out okay um, here's somebody who took an application. From or at least a part of an application from the public cloud moved it back into a a place where um, you know there was either better economies of scale or better operations. But you, you talked a lot about you know the importance of automating things, and, and that's something that I feel like more and more people have to have front and center as opposed to doing afterwards. It, like how like I mean, is there any chance that if you hadn't been making in these investments around automation that that any of this sort of would have worked if even if the design was was amazing and the software was amazing, I mean, that, absolutely not. You know, and, and that that was really the key. And I, I wrote a blog post about this. Um, it's on the Dropbox Tech blog about about verification systems, and that's something I put in a roughly similar category. And we, we have this kind of policy on on the team of this of this concept of a hundred percent correctness. At least you know, if I if I can ask the team today. Is this system currently 100% correct, or is our data 100% valid and uncorrupted? And we have to be able to answer that question every single day. And to be able to do that, there's this huge stack of verification systems, and we spend significantly more effort building these verifiers and building an underlying storage system, or at least significantly more time. The storage system is more kind of technically complex to design and implement, but we have this this big verification stack. And this is like absolutely critical to be able to have this kind of basis of trust, the basis of proof within the system that you can rely on. So, for example, um, I'll give you an example on the, uh, the two ends of the stack. The, the very lowest level verifier we have is called the disk scrubber. And this is a daemon that sits on every single node that, with every single disk. And it continually reads that disk back um, and checks every byte against checksums that we have on, on disk. Um, and this this scanner finds issues all the time. It finds errors all the time. These aren't software errors. It's not a bug on our end. But disks fail all the time. When you have hundreds of thousands of disks, those disks will fail. They'll get corruptions. They'll, they'll say they F-sync when they didn't F-sync. Um, and so you have, you know, one thing you can do is sit back and wait for 
a corruption to bubble up to the application level, but then you're exposing yourself to this big window of vulnerability during which time that you don't know that there's a it's on disk corruption. So we have these scanners running constantly trying to detect with very low latency if there is any on disk corruption. Um, if there is, we automatically kind of quarantine that data, re-replicate it um, elsewhere in the system, and then then uh, fire off an automated job to kind of remediate this disk. And what remediation means in this context is um, just say there's a bad sector on a disk, and that means uh, a byte's corrupted. You know, we, we mark that sector as bad, and we keep using the disk for a few times. After a, few, um, after a certain number of bad sectors have been detected, we decide, you know what, there's something wrong with this disk right now. Let's, let's reformat the disk entirely and try it again. Uh, we reformat the disk, bring it back to production. We try that for a certain number of times. If that fails again, then we automatically kind of quarantine that disk again and then you know, take it out and, and physically shred the disk. You know, that means actually taking that disk and throwing it into a giant shredder that will like, destroy that disk. Um, and this is all entirely automated. And this is no way you could trust a human being to do this. Uh, you know, we don't let an operator come anywhere near one of our disks if it has critical user data on that. So that means you know, we keep all our data in these volumes. They're called volumes. They're kind of replication units. And so you might have a, you know, a piece of data striped across 12 disks, for example. Um, and if one of those disks fails, you can't touch that disk until all data there has been re-replicated elsewhere in the system. Then that disk is flagged as now that disk is safe to remove. And a ticket's filed automatically, and someone can go and pull that disk out. Um, this whole process is automated. One, you know, if it wasn't automated, we'd spend all day just dealing with this stuff. And two, if it wasn't, there'd be mistakes would creep in. Um, you know, uh, that's just one level of the stack. There's probably seven, seven verifiers the whole way up um, that we rely on very heavily to kind of enforce correctness. That makes sense. And and so something that interests me too is is as I'm thinking this through, coming off of AWS and specifically coming off of, of S3, would it make sense then from an operational standpoint when we're trying to automate this as much as possible and doing some of these things, did you effectively almost rewrite the, that API layer to kind of make your own S3 emulator backend? Or did you kind of re, you know, re-customize the code? Or how much it was involved with that of that transition away from AWS and, and their API specifically into your own private world? Yeah, so if you think of the Dropbox architecture, uh, on the very bottom of the stack is the storage system, Magic Pocket, and it's a, it's, a, it's a blob storage system. So it's basically a giant key value store. It stores a, a, a hash of a block mapped to an you know, encrypted block on disk. Uh, one layer above that storage system is something we call file journal. And this is our actual file system. This is the, the, the system that stores, you know, you have these files and you've shared it with these people and uh, these are the revisions, et cetera. So the actual rich file system is stored on a higher layer. So that higher layer didn't really change that much. And what it meant is like building a kind of um, a translation layer to allow um, us to use both systems um, concurrently. And we do use both systems concurrently on a, kind of, on a per user basis. We have the, 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 um, the option to decide whether to store that data on Magic Pocket or on S3. The interfaces aren't exactly the same. And we actually change our API a little bit to, our, to kind of better suit our use cases. It simplifies um, some of our logic. Um, but yeah, basically we built this translation layer. Ultimately for us, 
you know, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but if you look at the kind of big infrastructure companies um, who have built big storage systems in the past, typically these companies that have been around a little bit longer than Dropbox, and they evolved at a time where there was no cloud, right? There was no Amazon S3 to leverage. So they built these storage systems, and they did an incredible job of doing so um, from, from zero to scale upwards from there. And they had an opportunity to iterate and evolve as they went. For us, we had to we had to build a system that from day one would store hundreds of petabytes. So, and we already had you know 500 million users that we had to service. So for us, it was really critical that we were able to have a very graceful transition from S3 onto our own storage, and to be able to do that migration without anyone noticing. And it was obviously absolutely critical that no one would notice that transition. Uh, we were successful at that. Um, you know, there, was, there was no kind of user-facing degradation of service. Um, and, and partly that, that came from this kind of pretty long validation period, which you call production validation, where we stored a significant fraction of our data on both systems simultaneously um, to have S3 as a backup while we made absolutely 100% sure Magic Pocket was, was ready to go at, you know, at that large scale. Um, and then once we, we determined... That we were, you, we'd signed off. Then it was, then it was on. Then it was, you know, time to scale up as fast as possible. And that, and that was this kind of big six-month period where we moved, you know, approximately 500 petabytes of user data into the storage system. Help, help folks understand some of this. I mean, anytime you ask any business to to go through a transition, and, and you were just, you know, you were going into detail there, where you're saying, look. You know, we weren't starting from scratch. We had this huge install base of, of customers expecting something, and then you know we we're going to move to something you you expected to be bigger. Give us a sense of, you know, what were the, you know, you're going to have, you know, business side of the house, people kind of banging on certain metrics they care about, you know, are we, are we more profitable? Are our costs lower, you know, as our customer experience number, like, well, give us some sense of the insight of kind of the trade-off that was going on or the prioritization that went on between the business people at Dropbox and, and the technical people who were going like, you know, hang on, let us just get this one more feature in there. Or, you know, we're, we're going to get there at some point. Hold on, you know, don't, don't freak out. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a good question. Fortunately for us, there wasn't, there wasn't a conflict along the way. That's only because the team really had to internalize this sense of trust, right? And I'm going to sound like a bit of a company man here spouting company values, but we have this kind of company value to be, be worthy of trust, right? And that's, that's very heavily internalized in the software team. So for us, absolutely, on day one, when we launch, we have to be at least as high performance as the existing system. And in terms of we're about three to five times faster on most of our metrics. And we have to be 100% durable. We have to be at least as, as, as available and, and durable as, as S3. Um, so, so that meant kind of building trust, trust within the organization, right? So it's all well and good to build this system. Um, but then you have to actually prove that, it's, that it works. And most of that came through this period of production validation where we literally sat down and we wrote this little contract, um, somewhat for fun, but it was, it was a real, very serious effort where we wrote a contract with, with the founders, Drew and Arash, and we said ahead of time, this is the conditions we have to hit to be able to launch a storage system. So you know, we're ready, we're running at scale, we have some significant fraction of our data mirrored onto the storage system, but the primary store is still S3. So this is what we have, these, are the, these are the criteria we have to hit to be able to launch. And those criteria included stuff like running at absolute production scale for six months with no incidents, no major downtime, no data loss, no corruption, um, and a big suite of tests. 
So, you know, physical, um, so, so software logical level tests, like, you know, um, we had, you know, people auditing the system and we did injected faults and we injected corruptions and made sure the system dealt with it gracefully. And also physical death. You know, we had people getting on planes, flying out to our data center and pulling out circuit breakers, you know, while the system's running to make sure that it, it fails gracefully or boxing up a rack and, and letting it overheat to, to, to all the servers crash and then bringing it up again and making sure that data is correct. So a lot of physical tests as well. And so we went through this production validation phase. And that was a, it was a very fun time. It was you know, very exciting to be doing all this test, to be putting the system through its, through its paces. Um, on the whole, it was a very um, successful period. But um, one notable thing, so we, ha- we have this software team. We're sitting in our little pod. We're working you know, extremely hard. We're all motivated. And we had a big clock on the wall, and I'd put a big kind of countdown clock um, counting down for 180 days. And we were like, we have to hit 180 days of production service before we can consider this a primary storage system. And we got, you know, about 30, 40 days into the countdown, and there was a problem. And so we noticed we have, we have a pretty involved release process where you first push code to a staging cluster, and that staging cluster runs a mirror of production data on it. And we run all these verification systems on, on the staging cluster. And the verification systems caught an error. Um, and that error, fairly obscure, won't go into details, but it didn't impact um, data safety, ultimately. Uh, there was no data loss. Um, but we all felt pretty uncomfortable that a, that a bug kind of got out to our staging cluster. And so then you face with this with this junction, right? You say we we didn't really break the rules of the contract. The, you know, the contract said you know data loss or major outages. We didn't have either of those, but we just didn't feel that comfortable in spirit um, going through the launch like this. So you know, I sent an email to the VP and I said, look, we're going to reset the launch clock. You know, we're going to start again. And fortunately, Dropbox is the kind of company where there was, I got met with you know a lot of enthusiasm. A very enthusiastic response to that, you know, this is the, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, now that was a very expensive decision. <laughs> that was that was delaying launch for you know one to two months, um, which has very um, concrete financial and and practical implications. Um, but ultimately, you know, we can't compromise on those kind of things. You know, and I, and, I, and I, I'm sure I could I could wax poetic for a long time about about team culture, et cetera. But I think for us, you know, establishing that culture within the team of like absolute confidence and correctness and, and trust, because, you know, no one wants to be involved in a story system that compromises user data, right? We all have that. It's, it's our personal integrity on the line, basically. Uh, so fortunately, that all worked out pretty well. So there was, there was no moment where, where Drew Houston came rolling in, pounded his fist on the desk like the NASA movies and said, I'm going on Bloomberg <laughs> tomorrow. You're not relaunching the clock. Ship the system. Yeah, yeah we're, 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 we've still got our jobs and we're all, we're all doing pretty well. So, but actually, yeah, <laughs> it actually worked out great. And I think, I think people were almost relieved that we had that clock resetting moment because, you know, it could have all gone seamlessly and we could have um, gone through the whole six months with that issue. But, you know, then you had those unknown unknowns in the background and, and it, it, was a, it was a good test of the team to, to have that issue happen, go back and invest more heavily in, in, in prevention mechanisms and then reset the clock and, and launch it in a way that we all felt very proud of, proud of doing so. That's great. That's great. That's a really impressive story. I love that. Great. Well, listen, um, 
James, I think we're going to, we're going to wrap up a little bit. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of hitting that, that time, uh, for the show. Um, so I don't want to put any pressure on you. We've, we've been a Dropbox customer for about the six years of the show. So, you know, if you want the show to go out, we, we got to make sure you guys keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing it very, very well. <laughs> we, we got you back. Don't worry. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's my life. You know, I, I, I live and breathe, uh, storage and, and, and data safety that, you know, we think about that every day. Um, so, so you're in good hands. Don't worry. <laughs> Very cool. Where uh, where can people find where you're going to be? You know, uh, you know, talking about the system. I assume you guys probably get calls all the time from potential clients and, and people that are thinking about doing big stuff. Where where can people you know engage with you, or or where does the team like to engage with uh, with the communities? Yeah, so we have, we have a few blog posts on the Dropbox Tech blog, so you can go to the Dropbox Tech blog and search for Magic Pocket. Uh, every time we launch a new blog post, uh, a few of us jump on Hacker News, and I always like to get um, pretty involved in those conversations. I find that the um, the reception from the readers is, is really pretty positive once a few engineers jump on and start giving honest answers to questions. So always down to, an- to answer questions there. Um, and I'm probably giving a talk at, at Facebook at Scale Conference uh, coming up pretty soon. Um, but, but stay tuned on the blog. I think we'll have a, a blog post coming out pretty soon about kind of our next generation storage architecture where we're using this new type of disk drive called an SMR, SMR storage. Um, so there should be some, some more interesting details coming out there. Very cool. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, listen, uh, Aaron, you want to, you want to take us home? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, James, thank you very much for all the information tonight. Uh, really, really was great stuff and super interesting to, to hear about. Um, on behalf of Brian and myself, uh, thank you very much for listening this week and, uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 